Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 130 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I have a little bit of a cold, so you might hear that in my voice, both uh, in this intro and in the episode, but the show must go on. So today I'm talking with Melissa Toller, a speaker, writer, and educator whose work encourages people to make the connection between our culture's oppressive beauty standards and our own personal struggle with self-acceptance. She was a previous guest on the podcast back in episode 75, so definitely check that out to hear her full story if you haven't already. And today she's back to discuss fat phobia in woke spaces, how diet culture robs us of our humanity, why social justice movements need to address body size as a form of oppression, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Carrie, who writes, Hi, Christy. I feel like everyone should be listening to your podcast. You've helped me find so much body positivity in my recent health journey. So in a nutshell, over the last two years, my body has turned on me. I always had the quote unquote ideal body until three months after my wedding. I gained a lot of weight in a very short amount of time, and my body shape changed as well. I began to feel nauseous, lethargic, and developed a dairy intolerance and psoriasis. After going to three different doctors, one who specialized in holistic hormone healing, and two nutritionists and a chiropractor, all I have found out is that there's nothing wrong with my thyroid and I don't have prediabetes. One doctor told me that my hormones were out of whack, and he prescribed me estrogen and progenolone. Another doctor told me that the holistic doctor was full of crap and that my body was simply freaking out and going into starvation mode and that I just need to let my body calm down and go back to its normal self. And then I was referred to a nutritionist. The nutritionist was no help and just put me on a basic diet plan and practically forced me to incorporate dairy back into my life. And the second nutritionist wasn't much better. I've always been very active. I work out and run X days a week and eat X percent healthy slash paleo and Y percent, which is a much smaller percentage, whatever I want to eat. So it's been really, really hard adjusting to my new body and constantly buying bigger sizes of clothing when I'm doing everything I can to prevent weight gain. I've been off any type of medication or birth control or multivitamin because I'm paranoid that everything I do will make it worse. It's been quite the journey for my self-esteem as well. Every time I become okay with myself, I have to buy a bigger size of jeans. Have you ever heard of a situation like this? And do you have any suggestions as to help me figure out what's wrong? Even if you don't, I still love you and your cause. So thanks, Carrie, for that question and your kind words. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So, yeah, I definitely have thoughts about this. I've definitely seen things like this before. And it sounds like the doctor who said your problem was because your body was going into starvation mode was actually on to something because what you told me about your eating and movement choices sounds really restrictive. And I know it might not feel like you're restricting because you're letting yourself eat whatever you want a small percentage of the time. But you know how often intuitive eaters eat whatever they want? 
100% of the time, right? So that is really something to look at. Like you're not letting yourself eat whatever you want or ease up on the restrictions or have no restrictions. You're actually being very restrictive the majority of the time. And paleo is a diet, even though it calls itself a lifestyle or an eating plan or whatever the going terminology is these days. It's a diet. And following any diet for a large percentage of the time is restriction. So it doesn't give you access to the full range of foods that your body needs and wants, right, or that your body and your brain both need and want. And it creates a sense of psychological deprivation as well as often physical deprivation of important food groups, particularly carbohydrates when it comes to paleo. So, you know, it sounds like you're really deprived. You're really restricting yourself. And it also sounds like you're really afraid of and worried about weight gain and that you were maybe attached to having the so-called perfect body before, which is another sign that's telling me that this, quote, lifestyle you've been following has actually been about suppressing your weight. And believe me, I get that. Like, that's not a judgment, right? Because all the pressure our society puts on us to suppress our weight is huge. And diet culture is everywhere. And it's really taken over our health and wellness industry. So it's not your fault that you think this way and that you're doing things that are really restrictive and geared towards suppressing your weight seemingly in the name of health. Like, that is what diet culture is doing to us these days. So I just want to offer you a lot of compassion for going through this. And I know it's really really, really hard. And to say that you're not alone and feeling like you have to restrict because that is what our cultural pressure does to us. But I also want to give you some real talk here, you know, because it definitely sounds like you've been dieting and suppressing your weight for years. And when people do that, their bodies eventually rebel in some way. So often it's by binging, right? We hear a lot about the binge restrict cycle. I talk a lot about that. But in some cases, it's by just gaining weight despite still following the same diet rules, despite not binging, not engaging in sort of letting go periodically, but actually still following the diet rules and your body gains weight anyway, because your body actually has all kinds of built-in mechanisms other than binging. You know, binging is one of them, but has lots of built-in mechanisms other than that to make sure that you don't starve. And that is, as I've talked about many times on these questions, an evolutionary benefit that we all have to thank for our being here as a species, right? We wouldn't be here if it weren't for that mechanism that kept our ancestors from starving. So it sounds like that's what's going on for you, that you've been following this restrictive plan for a while, and now your body's rebelling, not necessarily by binging, but just by rejecting your efforts to suppress your weight, by regaining weight that it needs to gain at all costs by any means necessary. And it also sounds like you're over-exercising, which is another piece of this. It's another thing that can push your body into starvation mode, right? And make it feel like it doesn't have enough energy coming in to meet its needs. So I would say try easing up on the physical activity for a while. And down the line, you can try to explore some other forms of movement choices that aren't motivated by weight suppression. But it sounds like in your case, your movement choices are motivated by weight suppression. And so that's something to really look at. The fact that you said to me, I've been doing everything I can to keep from gaining weight, tells me that that's really organizing your life, that that's really at the root of your food and movement choices. And that's something to really look at. 
So I'd agree with a doctor who said that your body's in starvation mode and that you don't need to cut out any foods from your diet or work with a holistic doctor at this point. Like, that's not what's needed. What I think you need to do is to bring foods back, right, and open up and ease up and allow yourself to give up some of the restrictions and pressures that you put on yourself to look a certain way and eat a certain way and exercise a certain way. Because it sounds to me like what you really have is disordered eating and exercise, And that's what's been going on for years. And so what you need is to spend some serious time breaking down the diet mentality, making peace with food, you know, challenging all your rules and restrictions, and eventually learning to tune back in and honor your body's needs. So instead of chasing like physical causes for this, I would really start working on your relationship with food. And to do that, I'd recommend reaching out to an intuitive eating dietitian with eating disorder experience and not just seeing them once or twice like you did with the other nutritionists, but really working with them for as long as it takes to root out all the restrictions in your eating and bring you to a place where you're able to eat whatever you want 100% of the time, right? True intuitive eating without the rules, without the restrictions, which actually has been shown, side note, to have better health outcomes than even the most seemingly flexible diet. And it doesn't seem like your diet's even flexible. It seems like it's actually very rigid. But even if you were to be more flexible in your dieting, people who are doing that flexible kind of dieting still have less favorable health outcomes on a variety of measures, including physical and mental health outcomes, than people who are intuitive eaters and who are eating whatever they want 100% of the time. Because whatever you want 100% of the time doesn't necessarily mean that you're just going to eat cookies forever, right? That's always the fear when people start intuitive eating. We talked about that a little bit on my episode with Ashley Soroya a few weeks back, the intuitive eating and health at every size FAQs episode. There's always this fear that if you start eating intuitively and easing up on the restrictions, you're going to end up face first in a pile of cookies or whatever it is, right? But actually... Intuitive eaters, once they get through that phase, and I call that the honeymoon phase, which happens to some folks and actually many folks in the beginning of their intuitive eating journey where they're excited about and want to just eat the foods that they were restricted of all the time. But that phase passes. And then ultimately with intuitive eating, you end up with actually greater food variety, greater balance, and more fruits and vegetables in your life than people who are on diets, people who are, you know, doing the sort of flexible dietary control thing or a more rigid version of dietary control. Intuitive eaters actually have better food variety and food quality in terms of being able to support their nutritional health. So that's really something to think about, right? If you're worried about giving up these restrictions because you're worried about your health. And I assume that you are probably from your question because it sounds like, you know, not just weight control, but also health is on your mind when you're engaging in these behaviors. So intuitive eating is actually better for your health in the long run than even the most flexible diet. And so really working to break down all those restrictions and get to a place of intuitive eating where you're eating whatever you want 100% of the time and not following these rules and rigid guidelines will actually serve your health a lot better than if you were to continue on the path that you're on. 
So all that said, I definitely recommend working with an eating disorder experienced dietitian, intuitive eating dietitian in the long term so that you can break down those restrictions, really work on becoming an intuitive eater. And I'd also recommend working with a skilled therapist who really understands this stuff, eating disorders, intuitive eating and health at every size to help you understand why you feel the need to have so much control over your eating and your exercise and to help you figure out how you can organize your life instead Like, what can you do with that mental space? What can you do to sort of give yourself a sense of stability and purpose and organization to your life other than this kind of hyper level of control over your eating and your exercise? So to find referrals to folks who can do this work with you in your area, preferably, go to intuitiveeating.org and look at the certified counselors directory there. Or go to HayesCommunity.com, which is H-A-E-S Community.com, and search their directory of health at every size providers for dietitians, psychotherapists, psychologists, and social workers. So I hope that helps and just want to offer a lot of compassion, but also some real talk about how, you know, it seems like you're engaging in some really restrictive behaviors and you deserve, you have every right to be less restrictive and to have a really balanced relationship with food and your body. And I think all the other things are going to start to fall into place once you address that. So to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, visit christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. If you want a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want, join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. We're brought to you today by Simple Contacts. I wear contact lenses and I always find myself dreading that yearly appointment to renew my prescription or just putting it off and then it's like a biannual appointment. So thankfully, Simple Contacts is a super convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your contacts from anywhere in literally minutes. You just take a five-minute vision test from your phone or computer and you'll record your eyes up close and read a visual acuity chart just like in the doctor's office. And then the test is recorded and reviewed by a physician in your state. Then you'll receive a renewed prescription and you can order your brand of lenses and they have all the brands you're familiar with, including options for astigmatism and multifocal lenses, colored lenses and lots more, all at great prices. So you never even have to leave home. There's no more doctor's offices or waiting rooms, although this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. But just for renewals, it's amazing. And it's only $20 and standard shipping is free. So it's incredibly simple, and it took me less than five minutes to do mine, and I did it in my pajamas standing in my kitchen, which I really love as someone who's busy and doesn't have time to sit in a doctor's waiting room for hours. So to get $30 off your contact lenses, go to simplecontacts.com slash psych, that's P-S-Y-C-H, and enter the code psych at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash psych, and enter code P-S-Y-C-H at checkout for $30 off your contact lenses. This episode is also brought to you by Casper Mattress. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models now, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, compact size 
size box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you have to spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. My husband and I have a Casper, and even though we each like different levels of firmness in a mattress, the Casper actually works for both of us because it's a perfect blend of pillowy softness and supportiveness that really cuts through our divisions. It brings us together. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com psych and using the code psych at checkout. That's casper.com slash psych and use offer code psych for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. We're also brought to you today by Chef Steps, the makers of the Jewel sous vide device. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With the Jewel sous vide, every home cook can create chef level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jewel makes sure your food will never over or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whip up some amazing sides. There are more than 100 recipes in the video-rich Jewel app to help you cook almost every protein, from meat to poultry to fish to eggs, plus desserts, veggies, and more. And if your guests are running late or your apps and cocktails are taking you longer than you expected, it's not a problem. Jewel is ready when you are, so your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code foodpsych, all one word, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E and use the code foodpsych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H altogether for $15 off your purchase. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Melissa Toller. So Melissa, welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you here today. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it was so great talking with you on your first appearance, which was episode 75, which was like a little over a year ago at this point that we're recording. So people should definitely check that out if they haven't heard it already. It's a really good episode. And since that was a year ago, tell us what you've been up to since then, you know, catch us up a bit on on your career and life developments since we recorded. Wow, I can't believe that has been over a year ago. That's I know. Hmm. I was not I was not thinking that. So a lot has happened since then. I think the last time we spoke, I was still considering myself a non-diet weight neutral wellness coach that has since changed. So that's probably the biggest thing that has changed since the last time we spoke. Earlier this year, I wrote a post about whether the title was Does the Health and Wellness Community Really Care About Health and Wellness? And It was something that I had been thinking about for quite some time. And, you know, the post had been brewing inside of me and on my computer for months. And then I decided, you know what, I want to take a break from wellness coaching at this point and just like get a grip on what it is that I want to do, what message I want to get out there, how I can best help people. And right now, the way that health and wellness has is going. It's probably always been that way, but I just started to wake up to it. And in my own transformation and my own education and awareness and awakening about the world around us, it just didn't fit with me anymore. So right now I'm doing a lot of writing, writing about unlearning and unraveling and untangling all of the messages that we learn about ourselves and our bodies. So that's what I'm doing right now. 
That's awesome. Yeah, no, I completely identify with that. The idea that health and wellness is not really about health and wellness, that it's so rooted in diet culture and these oppressive structures that it's hard to do something different within the field. So, you know, I think it's makes a lot of sense that people in this field are grappling with that and sort of trying to figure out, like, what is it we're actually here for? Like, what are we doing? Yes. And related to what we're going to be talking about today, health and wellness leaves a lot of people behind and out, right? They set a standard for what's required to be worthy. And being in constant pursuit of someone else's idea of health and wellness is what makes you worthy. And it just leaves so many people out. And it just is not consistent with the way I live my life anymore and the way that I think. Mm, yeah, the healthism has like really yes. taken over. Ugh, I know. Yeah. No, I, I totally hear that. I feel like it's something that I've grappled with in my own work too, is like, how can I, I've stopped talking publicly about nutrition. That's one kind of development that I've had since we last spoke to is I'm mm. like, I'm not writing about here are the benefits of avocados or here's, I mean, sometimes I'll still do like myth busting things about like, here's why sugar isn't actually bad for you or whatever, but stuff about like foods that are supposedly healthy or have certain vitamin content. Here's what that does for you. Like, I just don't feel like that's helpful to people because I think that's, even if it's done in the spirit of helping and abundance and like here's things you can add to your life to be healthier or whatever the concept of healthier right and the concept that like people should be doing anything to their food to try to manipulate their health or change their health that's not where everybody is in their journey and actually i think for most people that i work with they need to do a lot more unlearning of all the unhelpful nutrition advice out there and the unhelpful diet culture messaging they've gotten about nutrition and food before they can approach nutrition in a way that's actually self-care. Oh, yes. Yes. And it's like it gets so tangled up in diet culture. So I think if I were to put out anything publicly, even from, you know, with the best of intentions of like this gentle nutrition sort of element of intuitive eating, but with intuitive eating, like the gentle nutrition principle is the last principle for a reason because you have to do all this work to break down the diet mentality and all the bullshit that diet culture has taught you about food and bodies before even being able to relate to nutrition in a way that feels self-caring and not punishing or rooted in diet culture. So I'm like, yes. I'm just not going to do that. You know, with individuals that I work with, yes, maybe I'll talk about that if it's appropriate to them. But for the general public, I just don't even want to go there. I'm like, the, my message now is sort of like, don't worry so much about what you're eating. Like, it's not really the problem or the issue here. I, I totally agree. Because even the best of intentions with nutrition information, when when it's done in the context of diet mentality, which a lot of us are in, it's hard to understand. <laughs> it's hard to understand it outside of that. So I'm all, I'm in totally in agreement with breaking down as much as possible the diet mentality before even going there because it just it you run the risk of having it to be incorporated just like another meal plan eating plan or diet totally yeah i think the diet mentality pervades so much of 
nutrition and health. Like I always tell people like 99% of what you read about nutrition and health in this culture is going to be rooted in diet mentality. So just know that and like don't, you know, (laughs) be sort of aware when you're going in that like it's probably going to be problematic. It's probably going to be something that is not in line with health at every size or intuitive eating or what you're trying to do to accept your body. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, you know, speaking of, I mean, I think the the other big piece of health and wellness, like you were saying, that it leaves so many people out is that there's a social justice aspect to the conversation, right? Like the people who get left out of the health and wellness conversation are the people who get left out of a lot of conversations, right? Like it's, you know, marginalized identities are not centered in the health and wellness movement. And the people who are centered increasingly, it's like, you know, thin, white, able-bodied, cisgendered folks with a lot of privilege already. And, you know, they're being made out to be sort of like the face of health and wellness. And so I think social justice has to be centered in all the conversations we have about body acceptance and health at every size. But also, I think you made a really amazing point, and that's kind of why I wanted to have you back on the show today and sort of center our conversation around this, that, you know, we also need to think about how fat phobia is showing up in other social justice conversations. And in, as you said, woke spaces, right, where people are hip to social justice issues, but they're not understanding how fat phobia plays in. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. So I'm really excited to dive into that conversation. And could you start by kind of talking a little bit about the article you wrote and giving a definition of, of what you see as fat phobia and woke spaces, including maybe a definition of the word woke, just for anyone who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't yes. know the lingo. Yeah. So I, like a month or so ago, maybe even longer, I wrote a post again, one that had been stewing and brewing both in my head and on several notes in my computer about the fat phobia I see among people who are doing social justice work or not exploring it, but people who are quote unquote woke and woke means people who are aware or who have been awakened to the social injustices within our country. And it's basically being socially conscious. And I've noticed in several woke spaces, meaning in Facebook groups that are committed to social justice or social justice conversations are happening, or in individual activists or writers, social media pages or feeds, I have seen comments about fatness being a bad thing. So while on the one hand, these individuals, and I also want to just pause here and say that this is not me pointing fingers. It is really an opportunity to make something, to bring something to light and encourage us to really think about it and ultimately do better. And so I see that on the one hand, there are individuals and groups of individuals who are actively doing work, writing, marching, whatever, to end social injustice in whatever way in this country, while simultaneously continuing to uphold the status quo around body size and continuing fat phobic conversation and mocking people in fat bodies. And to me, those two things are inconsistent. Like we are either for the liberation of everyone or we want to continue what's happening right now. Like we, you know what I'm saying? Like we have to, 
it either includes everyone or or not. <laughs> right. Because it is upholding the status quo if you're if you're still continuing to discriminate against one group of people and say, well, all these other people, all these other identities shouldn't be marginalized, but except for this one. <laughs> yes. Yes. It has to be an all or none thing, in my opinion. And I also want to say I am no activist or expert. I am still very new to all of this. I have in the past year, learned so much. And even in the past 24 hours, <laughs> Christy, I have to send you, I have to send you these articles that I found on the internet last. I was like on the internet for hours, but just, I'm still new to this myself. I think what's important is for all of us to just think critically about the way our culture teaches us to value bodies, whether it's based on color, gender, sexuality, ability, or size. Like we have to really think about what that means and what that does to us as well as to our fellow human beings. Mm, such a good point. Yeah. And I think it's really powerful to address this in woke spaces where people ostensibly care about social injustice, right? And they're thinking critically about it in all these different arenas. And it's like this is the vanguard of social change, right? People who are in woke spaces should theoretically be the people who are sort of leading the charge on creating a more just society and helping break down systems of oppression. So if we can kind of spread the message to those folks of like, hey, you're leaving out this really important group here and this really important identity that is just as marginalized or, you know, not to compare oppressions because that's not right. You you quoted Audre Lorde to say in your yes. piece, like, we can't have a hierarchy of oppressions, right? All oppression is a problem. And there are fat black queer folks. There are fat Latinx folks. I mean, like, if fat is not this category off to the side. It crosses all races, all genders, all abilities. So it has to be included. Right. Yeah. And when woke spaces marginalize the people within them, right, marginalize yes. fat folks, it's like they're they're marginalizing their people, too. It's not just this this separate group to the side. Like you said, there's an intersection there. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's so important. And I mean, what would you say for people who are interested in starting to like spread the word that fat phobia is also something we need to be aware of and working to eradicate? I mean, it, this is an ongoing conversation, an ongoing question that I get all the time from people in my online courses and my coaching clients and stuff that say like, oh, now that I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it everywhere. You know, I'm now that I'm awake to it, I'm noticing it all around me. You know, fat phobia is just everywhere. And what do I do when I hear it come up or when someone makes a fat phobic comment in my presence? And I think it's different in different contexts, but I think especially in woke spaces, like it's an interesting conversation to think about how do you point that out? How do you bring light to that in these spaces where people ostensibly need to know? Yeah, I think you just have to call it out. You have to just say that, you know, if we're here in this space and we're talking about and doing work toward making this world more just and equitable, we have to incorporate everyone into our conversation. I think there's just no tap dancing around it. I know it's uncomfortable, but Calling the fat phobic statements or words out is not necessarily calling the person out because here's the reality. We have all been marinating, for lack of a better word, <laughs> in this culture that 
again, has taught us that certain bodies are less valuable than others. And so I always want to acknowledge the just the plain fact that it's it's something that we may not see in ourselves because it's so much part of our culture. And so on the one hand, I don't really think a lot of these folks who are in woke spaces are intentionally being fat phobic. I think it is the way of our world. And that's just not something that many folks have thought about and have done any real work around. And also, a lot of us have our own complicated histories and traumas and experiences with our own body. And we bring that into the conversation as well. So bringing it back to your question, I think just calling out the fat phobic statement or comment and just saying why it is fat phobic and people will want to defend and then bring up, you know, the next level defense is, well, the whole health argument, which is, we could go on and on about that, but yeah. <laughs> And that's a whole other thing, which I, I think is needs to to be addressed in those spaces as well, because that uh, that too, the argument that well, people should be healthy is still upholding the status quo that only like that health should be a priority for everyone. Meanwhile, we don't have a system that is set up for every single person to be well. You know, there are systems and going against people that prevent them from being, quote unquote, healthy and well. So we are holding people accountable to be healthy and well when we don't have the environment that's set up to allow that for everyone to experience. Totally. Yes. Like poverty and lack of access to health care and lack of access to spaces to move or food to eat or whatever, right? And just plain, just good old-fashioned discrimination. Yeah. That is, <laughs> that is, I mean, that takes a toll on human beings. We see that every day. And so people who are advocates for social justice, they are keenly aware of that. Like, that's what their whole thing is. And so to continue to perpetuate discrimination or marginalization of people who are fat is goes against what we're for, or we say we stand for in these woke spaces. Right. And I think the health argument is so interesting, right? Because there's so much research now showing that weight stigma and also stigma on discrimination on all bases, 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 is <laughs> um, really bad for people's health, right? It takes a toll. It's incredibly stressful. It puts a lot of stress on the body. And people who are experiencing a lot of discrimination and marginalization are more likely to be less healthy than their peers in the same socioeconomic status who are experiencing less discrimination. So mm, mm. like that's huge. And if we recognize that with regard to race and gender and sexuality and ability, we have to also recognize it with regard to body size. And there's lots and lots of research now showing that weight stigma actually could account for all of the excess health risks seen in people in larger bodies. So it's not about their size causing the health risks. It's actually about the discrimination causing the health risks. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And this idea of like, what about health, I think is very rooted in a super stigmatizing system that just reflexively equates like larger body size to poor health without looking at stigma as the mediating factor. Like stigma could account for all of the reasons why we see 
more health problems in people in larger bodies. And that's never even talked about in the research. Like that's never addressed the research that says, quote unquote, obesity is causing X, Y, Z health outcomes is not the research that's saying, hey, look at like the toll that weight stigma is taking on people. That's sort of a separate body of research and they're not talking to each other. Yes. And then so related to that, something I've been thinking about and I don't want to take us too far off track is this. We, um, the, the more I read and study and talk to people, the more I see how much we prioritize money and things over actual human beings. And so the conversation about the obesity epidemic is about costs. It's about healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. Like that's why it, there's an epidemic. But there's no, like you said, there's no care or conversation about what weight stigma does to actual human beings. We don't care about that. Right. Yeah. Our healthcare system does not give a crap about that. Like that's not in the conversation. And it, and even though we know, and even though so much research shows like, well, we don't actually have a way for people to lose weight and keep it off permanently. So we probably shouldn't be prescribing weight loss, but <laughs> it's all we know. So we're just going to do it anyway. Do it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, really? Oh my God. Yes, girl. Mm-hmm. Keep doing the same thing over and over <laughs> and expecting different results, right? <laughs> oh, I can't. Yeah. So you're right. Like this, I mean, I think that is a really important point that it's prioritizing money and things and systems as opposed to actual human beings and actual quality of life. Because if we looked at that, if we did prioritize fat people's quality of life and the quality of life of people of all sizes, right, mental health, we would actually be doing something completely different. Like the quote unquote obesity epidemic wouldn't be a thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that's a hard change for us to make collectively, which I don't think, and just because it's hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. I think that's what you and I are, and so many other people are trying to at least bring the conversation and make connections so that people can start to see exam- real life examples where we deprioritize people's humanity. We deprioritize our emotional and mental well-being. And once you start to see that, then it becomes a little bit easier for you to make changes in your own life. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing, like, you know, thinking about our humanity as opposed to our health, right? And thinking about our humanity as opposed to the bottom line or the cost to society, quote unquote, of, of healthcare changes the conversation completely. And I think for people who are struggling with this, like all of our listeners, right, I think no one would be here listening if they didn't have some struggles of their own with their relationship with food and their body and are are trying to recover and trying to find out more information and trying to change. So like, I think it does, I was thinking about this, this idea of like fat phobia and woke spaces and how Fat phobia in non-woke spaces is also a huge issue, right? I mean, that's like next level fat phobia. And (laughs) I mean, it's not like it's only an issue in woke spaces. It's an issue everywhere. And it's actually more of an issue in spaces that are not devoted to social justice or don't care about social justice or actively oppose it. Like we saw with the Charlottesville murder, like Heather Heyer was subject to an incredible amount of, you know, terrible yes. fat phobia after, you know, by white supremacists after her, they murdered her, right? So, like, that's a next level sort of overt fat phobia. But I think 
for people who don't even consider themselves woke, right, but want to learn to make peace with their bodies and make peace with food and feel better about themselves, I think it's it's a really important conversation to have about social justice, to bring social justice into the mix and to say, like, you can't actually do the work individually if we're not also doing the work collectively. Like, it's yes. it's not really possible for individuals to recover fully from diet culture and fat phobia and weight stigma they've experienced if we're not also doing the work to recover the culture from those things. Yes, because, I mean, we are the culture, right? So we are the people at work talking to each other. We are the people at church talking to each other. We are the teachers at school having an influence on children. And so while I know the importance of us individually making peace with our bodies and food and the struggle that that is and how difficult that is, I now know the importance of having a more collective view in mind. Like I said earlier, liberation should be for everyone. And if you feel like, like I know people think that they're not oppressed and the use of the word freedom and liberation seems like it's over the top. And yes, there are people who are more marginalized and oppressed than others. But the reality is until all of us are free, then none of us are really free. And when you think about just the whole example about fat phobia, when we perpetuate ideas that a certain body type is unworthy and unacceptable and not valuable and is deserving of marginalization and having their humanity dishonored, then that, the way that affects other people, like that gives the rest of us no room to be ourselves. Like we're, we then have to be under constant scrutiny so that we don't quote unquote get to that point so that then we are marginalized and oppressed. And so, you know, there's a connection between all of us and all of this. And I think sometimes that can be difficult to see because we do get wrapped up, rightfully so, in our own personal stories and our own personal struggle. But we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it's really the personal struggle wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't be having these personal struggles if it weren't for the society that's created those forms of oppression, that hierarchy of bodies. Yes, hierarchy of bodies. Yes. I mean, and I try to acknowledge that I have thin privilege, so I have not personally experienced discrimination based on my body size out in the world. But Virgie Tovar actually just wrote a great piece about the three levels of fat phobia that she sort of distinguished. And it was like the first level is intrapersonal, like within the person. And that's the level that like all of us experience basically no matter our size in this culture because of what we've been told about fatness and fat bodies. And so we're all afraid of fatness. We're all, you know, judging mm -hmm. ourselves as being too big based on these unrealistic standards we're sold. And so the intrapersonal level is sort of the one that we can all connect on, I guess, or empathize with. But then there are these other two levels, which are like the interpersonal, the between people level of fat phobia, which is something that by and large, only people in larger bodies really experience like being bullied, being teased, being shamed for their size by other people, which I mean, occasionally people in thinner bodies that I've worked with who have eating disorders will tell me like horrible things that were said to them by parents or just people who really had their own issues in their lives, shaming them for their body size and they were in a thinner body to begin with. So like mm -hmm. that's 
definitely something that can happen. But like, for the most part, the interpersonal level really is experienced by people in larger bodies. And then there's like the systemic level or societal level of discrimination in healthcare or discrimination in hiring practices and jobs and like being paid less than their Mm. larger body people being paid less than their thinner counterparts and having a harder time romantically or being more subject to sexual harassment and things like that. So like that sort of systemic violence and oppression is really targeted towards the people in larger bodies as well. And of course, the people in the very largest bodies have the most of that kind of oppression on the whole. So I think it's important to sort of look at all three of those levels and to say, like, even if for folks who are listening who are in a smaller body and don't experience those two levels of like interpersonal or societal oppression, Those are the forms that are causing the intrapersonal stuff. Like those are Mm -hmm. the forms that are perpetuating all of us feeling crappy about our bodies, no matter our size. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hadn't heard those three levels, but I'm going to check that out. That totally makes sense. Yeah, it really articulated something that I had been sort of grappling with, too, of understanding like, what is the sort of universal experience that we all have of like internalized fat phobia and then how it affects people in larger bodies differently on these further levels? You know, it's like she just puts such a fine point on it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm going to link to that in the show notes because I think that's a great resource. But yeah, so this idea of like the systemic and the interpersonal levels of oppression, I think are something that woke folks can really get as soon as. I mean, for me, I think it was certainly a personal struggle to get to a place where I could see it as a as a systemic issue, because even though I was always pretty committed to social justice and, you know, had my fumblings and learning and, you know, I'm still learning about all this stuff, but like have been a lifelong liberal. So I I kind of was steeped in at least the effort to to understand social justice. But I didn't I wasn't aware that body size was was a, an issue, you know, and I had my own eating disorder. I had my own internalized fat phobia. I had all the healthism that I had learned and my education as a dietitian, all of that I had to unlearn or unpack in order to start really seeing the social justice aspect of this for what it is. So I think there's a lot of unpacking and unlearning, like you said, for even folks who are committed to social justice in the first place. But I think it's probably easier for it to click for people who already get what oppression is on other levels, you know? Yes. Like yes. It can sort of fit into a framework more easily. Yes, absolutely. And that was one of the reasons that I wrote that article about fat phobia and woke spaces, because you have people who are already thinking about inequities and the ways that we are discriminated against based on our bodies, essentially, whether it's color, gender, sexuality size or not size, but they, they already are talking about this. So it's easier to introduce this into the framework. And also it's important for them to include it in their conversation. So when they're at conferences or in groups of people or trainings to include fat phobia in the conversation, like it's the same thing as everything else because it is, but oftentimes fat phobia is completely left out of any conversation. And so that's sort of the next level of number one, becoming aware that some folks in, in these places are still exhibiting fat 
phobic behavior and using fat phobic language. But then the next step really is bringing that into the fold and having the conversation about it. Mm, yes. And just naming it too. I think it's so powerful. Naming it. Yes. In the conversation about identities, just putting the word fat phobia in there could make such a difference in someone hearing that for the first time and being like, oh, wow, really? That's the same as gender-based oppression or race-based oppression or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And so for people who are who are doing this work, this social justice work and already working in these spaces, what do you think are some good strategies they can they can undertake for incorporating size-based awareness in their work? <laughs> so I don't know. I think, you know, when I think about my own journey, I sort of started out in the other direction where fat phobia was the thing that I had really had been talking about and for the past year or two. And then in that, like during that time is when I sort of started to learn more about other oppressions. Fat phobia had been my focus, I'll say, but now I'm sort of incorporating all of it into my writing and into my work because I think it's important. I think becoming aware, I, you know, I don't know how people in organizations that are dedicated to social justice, I don't know how they get the information to them, right? Because what I was going to say earlier, and it had slipped my mind, was when issues come up in the public about fat discrimination, I only notice a few of like the activist people I follow on Facebook. I only notice a few of them bringing that to light. But when issues of gender discrimination or race-based discrimination come up, then like everybody and their grandmother has something to say about <laughs> it. So, you know, honestly, I don't know how the word gets to them because we have so few people who have fat phobia on them, like who, who are aware of size-based discrimination and weight stigma. We have so few people relative to the greater social justice movement community I don't know how the word gets there and gets there quickly, but it's so entrenched in our language and our behavior. I mean, from cradle to grave, basically. Yeah. We have conversations around fatness and how it's not good or it's good with conditions. Like a fat baby is good, but then once they start walking, they should be able to burn off all the fat or you can be fat if you're healthy, as long as you're healthy. You know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. We can't escape it, really. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, that's why I think the word diet culture is so appropriate. And so like, because it is all encompassing. It's this culture that we live in. And I've been researching recently, like the history of diet culture and wanting to know more about how do we get here? Like, how do, how is it like this? And where did all the sort of entrenched roots get planted? And it's like, really only like 150 years ago or so. Like it's not, I mean, in, in the U.S. at least, mm -hmm. that the sort of intense fat phobia and having it be tied up with quote unquote health and having diets be the prescribed solution, that all happened not all that long ago, you know? And that was, it was the product of like, I mean, racism was a big part of it, you know? Oh, yeah. 
starting to sort of try to distinguish bodies or create a hierarchy of bodies based on race, but sort of not having to say that, right? And so being like, well, thinness is better and demonizing larger bodies was a proxy for racism in some, some sense. And money was a huge part of it too, right? Like having a diet industry and, and, you know, people starting to respond to ideas about needing to lose weight for their health, quote unquote, and having doctors sign on to it and promote these ideas. Like, I mean, I was reading about the Victorian era and how women would wear corsets. That was sort of the, the fashion at the time and like the standard, which caused like organ damage and broken ribs and collapsed lungs and stuff like that. But doctors were saying at the time that corsets were actually healthy and beneficial for women because their delicate bone structure couldn't hold them up if they didn't have the support of a corset. Like, you know, yeah. So it's it's really interesting to see how health has been sort of co-opted by fashion and sexism and racism and all of these oppressive forces at whatever period in history, you know, the doctors and the medical field are just a part of the culture and can be sort of roped into whatever the conventional wisdom, quote unquote, (laughs) is about about bodies and health, right, or about bodies. So, yeah, and I think that's what we're seeing now, too. You know, I think this idea of the so-called obesity epidemic and doctors and health professionals of all stripes feeling the need to encourage people to lose weight is just that, is is the insidious diet culture having reached into the health field and sort of co-opting it for its purposes. Yes, and so I think you bring up a good point that made me think about your other question about how can we get the message to social justice activists about fat phobia. And I think bringing in the connection between fat phobia and race and money, like once you see that, once you see that hierarchy of bodies is created and has, I mean, it's sort of the foundation of this country, right? There were white people, white bodies were worthy of being citizens only. White male bodies could only vote. And so we've always had a hierarchy of bodies. We've used bodies as ways to get money. Bodies were commodities. Like the slave trade was the primary economy of the United States. So we have a long history of hierarchy of bodies and then capitalizing on that. And that's what diet culture and the diet industry, which is a $60 billion industry, like if that goes away, which it won't in our lifetime, but like that's a lot of money. People are not trying to give that up anytime soon. So they have to continue with this upholding a hierarchy of bodies and encouraging people through healthism messages to lose weight, even though we have research that shows that most people, the majority of people cannot maintain a weight loss long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so true. I mean, it's it's not just individuals. It's the structure that's that's paying people a lot of money and that's keeping people in business and keeping companies in business and companies are not, you know, corporations don't let themselves 
be eaten up. Like they do whatever they can to survive, whether that means rebranding as a lifestyle change, which so many of them have done now, right? Like Weight Watchers and this is body positive now because that's what people want. It's all gonna, and I think that's the other thing too with people who like are coming to this movement, want to understand health at every size and body acceptance and like giving up dieting. It's like, I think you have to recognize that it's so insidious that like something that might seem on the surface to be not about dieting actually is because they are that company, that corporation, that entity is holding on for dear life. Absolutely. And people are not going to give up money. Remember when I said we we prioritize money and things over people? Businesses will shape shift as much as they possibly can <laughs> to still keep the money coming in. They're not going to Weight Watchers is, you know, as much as they want to bring Oprah in and talk about body positive, their goal is to still have a scale at the meetings, right? They they still want you to come in and pay your membership and buy their meals and whatever else they sell. So the money thing can't be ignored. It's huge because you're asking people to give up billions of dollars and people aren't, aren't trying to do that. Right. Yeah. And corporations are like their own machine. You know, even if yes. some people within the corporation might be like, oh, my God, I get it now. They're not going to be able to change the corporate culture just no. by one person understanding it. They're probably going to quit their job and go do something else. Yes. Because the bottom line is what really matters. Yeah. No, it is it is really sad, like how much money controls things. Oh, yeah. And so for people who for people who are trying to give up dieting and for people who want to get out of this system, what do you think we can do to oppose or fight back against or just like protect ourselves from all of these insidious corporate messages and messages from diet culture and the diet industry around us? I think one of the most important things is becoming aware and awake to the ways that it has affected your own individual life, but also just making the connection between your own struggle and the culture that we live in, right? The making the connection between your individual struggle to be free from food anxiety and obsession about body and weight connecting that struggle with the larger social justice struggle to to have equity and justice between or among people regardless of their bodies. I think when we see ourselves as part of a collective, I mean that's ultimately helpful to everyone. It just it's not just about us. And reading as much as you possibly can and listening to podcasts like this where these conversations are being had because the reality is they're not being had everywhere. You really have to search them out. And I'm telling you, like the stuff that I was looking up last night, I searched for hours. It didn't just come up on the first page of a Google search for some reason. So I'm committed to this as an individual, as someone who cares about other human beings and how we value bodies. And I see how wrong that is. I see the repercussions of us as individuals and as a society. And it's like literally my daily work. Yeah, no, that I think that's really important to think about, like making it a part of your practice, making it a daily 
search to seek out these alternative or these conversations that nobody's having or that not enough yes. people are having. Yeah. Yes. And and one of the things that's been really helpful to me, because I, I read a lot, I've listened to podcasts, It's those are probably the things that have helped me along this just in a year, the stuff that I've learned. But I also do, like I mentioned early on, I do a lot of writing. Like I write, I have this course that I call Write to Get Free, where my writing is helps me to unravel some of the beliefs and messages that I have floating around in my head about race, gender, sex, dating, relationships, bodies. So that process has helped me significantly to just, you know, get clear and like to hear my own voice. Because I think that's another thing that we lose is our ability to hear what our own individual desires are, because there's so much external noise in the way. Yeah, our own intuition gets so clouded. Yes. Yeah. Well, and then we're also taught that we can't trust ourselves anyway. Totally. Yeah, with food, with eating and and movement and stuff like that, but also in so many other ways, like Mm -hmm. relationships and dating and work Mm -hmm. and all that. So. Yeah, learning to, I mean, I the work I do with people on intuitive eating, I feel like is this sort of one little portal in where it's like you can learn to tune back into your intuition with food and your body. And then maybe through that, you open up into being able to tune back into your intuition in other areas of life too. And I, I do see that happen a lot. And that was my experience as well with my own recovery from disordered eating was like, as soon as I was able to tune into my intuition about food, I started to recognize, oh, that, you know, it's a similar and I hear I'm such an auditory learner. So I totally like hear the voice, you know, it's like my inner voice in my head. And I could hear like the difference in the quality of that voice when it was the real voice, you know, versus the the critical outside voices or the self-judgmental voices. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. It's huge. It's It's fascinating how much we are taught and encouraged to tamp down our intuition and trusting the voice inside of us and how important that is in various aspects of life. Yeah. I mean, and thinking about social justice too, right? Like the people who've been oppressed or traumatized in various ways, there's there's a voice there that comes up and says like, this isn't safe or this is a problem or I'm angry, like I'm reacting to this, right? And then the oppressive society that we live in tells people like, oh, it wasn't that bad. He didn't mean it or it's not mm-hmm. their fault or, you know, mm-hmm. like the sort of erasing of people's own experiences of real trauma or reaction to to oppressive things that they've experienced and then makes people question themselves, makes people gaslit, really. Oh, yeah. Yep. Question their own reality. So, yeah, that's I love that idea of writing to get free and writing to sort of be able to reconnect with that inner voice. What does that look like for you? Do you have like prompts that you use or is it sort of free form? I usually use prompts or just themes or topics. And then when I don't have one, I'll just do stream of consciousness writing. And oftentimes that'll take on its own subject or theme partway through my writing. But yeah, it's been amazing. That's awesome. Tell us more about the course. What's that? How is that structured? And and how can people get involved too? Yeah, I so it's a four week course. And it is 
every week I send out an email and it's a theme. There's a theme to every week and with some reflective questions and then a prompt. And then I encourage people to write as little or as much as they want and they're free to share it with me or the group, but they don't have to. And then we meet once a week to talk about our reflections from that most recent prompt. Mm. So people can kind of go deeper if they want with the group. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's having the community part of it, like of being with other people. And again, people don't have to share their writing. Most people don't when we're live on the call, but sharing our experience with the process. Like it's really about the process is the, the class isn't for writers at all. People, there are people who are, can, who do consider themselves to be writers, but it really is just a way to like, like I said, hear your own voice. Mm. And do people end up writing a lot about these experiences of oppression and fat phobia and stuff like that? Or is it kind of, does it run the gamut? It runs the gamut. I think the prompts that we use this time brought up a lot of stuff in the past that we talked about anger. We talked about like liberation is for everyone. So, you know, it was, it brought up a lot of things from people's past experiences, but also made people start to think about moving forward. What does this all mean for me? How do I want to move forward with this? I love that. I feel like that's really the key to all of this work is to think about it as like, it's not your fault, right? There are these external pressures on all of us and it's a collective issue that we can all collectively help to address. And then looking at real solutions and and ways that we can break free and become liberated from these structures, even while having to live in this society. Yes, yes. Because we all have to, we all have to come back, you know, we can't just, <laughs> it'd be nice to create a little utopia of anti-diet woke folks, but. Yeah, it would be great. The reality is a lot of this will not change in our lifetime, but that doesn't mean that we stop doing the work. And sometimes that's hard for me to, to mm, accept. <laughs> me too. It's really hard for me to accept, but I accept it because it's real. It's real. Yeah, it is. And every social justice movement, every real change in society, I think, has been that way, right? It's like yeah. one generation sort of lights the torch and then gives it to the next generation. And then however many generations it takes, it ultimately gets done. But I mean, not completely done, of course, because there's so much that we still have to do. But like, we're still running this torch that started with back in like the 1800s or whatever it was with the civil war and emancipation and all of that. Like that's still, that work is still being done. And same with the work of the women's movement and now mm -hmm. fat liberation and, and all of it, right? That work is still being done generations before the, the sort of founders of it uh, or generations after rather the founders of it started it. So absolutely. Yeah. But I, I think that's having a collective and a community to support this work is also so key with that. Cause like as individuals, I mean, I definitely experience that sometimes too, of just like, is this ever going to change? And what are we even doing? I feel like I'm just banging my head against a wall, but then I'm with all these awesome people who are also doing the work and continuing to make change and support each other and, and have this community where we can like offload some of that negative feeling. Mm -hmm. It really helps. It's really important to have people around you who get it and who are there to support you. And even when you screw up, like you need 
that community because we're not perfect in this. Like we're still learning. I am still learning as of last night (laughs) stuff. So, and I'm going to continue to learn. I think that's one of the things that I love about this, that there's so much for me to learn and so many ways for me to grow. And of course, I'm going to get things wrong along the way. I'm going to say the wrong thing, the wrong way to the wrong person. And I want to always do better, but I know that there will be some bumps along the way. And that's, that doesn't stop me from, from doing this. Yeah. It's going to stop me from doing this. I feel the same. I totally feel that. Like I'm always making mistakes and learning and growing and shifting. But I think there's, I definitely have heard people say like, it's so scary and intimidating to even wade into this work because I feel like I'm going to get called out and like shamed or shut down or something. But I think it's, if you can really be resilient and do the work of processing your own shame and and your own sort of like, oh man, crap, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that. And like just sort of learning and moving forward. It's really, really fulfilling and amazing work. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And you will (laughs) you will mess up. You will say some shit that that is not awesome. Like it's happened to me. People will call you out or call you in. The good thing is you will not die from it. It, You will be hurt. I mean, I've been nicely called out or in and I was all broken up about it. (laughs) So, you know, it just it's part of it. But here I am still doing it. Yeah, that's a really important message, too, that like it's going to happen to everyone. We're going to get called out. We're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. That's part of it. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Well, tell us more about where people can find you and follow your work that you're doing now. And I have a feeling there's like good stuff coming on the horizon, too, with all this writing you're doing. So like, oh, people should yes. definitely be following your blog and all of that. Yes, yes. I'm at melissatoller.com. That's where I have my original blog, which is where, you know, I've had years of writing about dieting and diet culture. And I also started a writing about writing blog on the same website. So you can check that out too. Mm, I love it. Meta writing. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much, Melissa. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, thank you so much, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Melissa Toller for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us higher in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and so that we can continue to challenge all the pro-diet messages out there and keep rising up in the health category. Just click on the three dots at the bottom right corner of your screen and then click on share episode from the drop down menu. Great cooking is part art and part science. Jules Suvide takes care of the science, cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use the code FOODPSYCH to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E and use the code FOODPSYCH at checkout. 
To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 130. That's christyharrison.com slash 130. And if you want a deeper dive into all things anti-diet, come join one of my online courses. Whether you're in recovery from disordered eating yourself or you're a professional helping others recover, I've got resources for you. Learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash courses. That's christyharrison.com slash courses. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Saroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect?